Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Three dead. women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen, and sitting across from me is the have I already used effervescent? Effervescent, Miss <gasps> oh, Charlotte. Wait, maybe I think I have because I was just... impressed by the word, <laughs> and then I thought of a light bulb, and I was like, Oh, oh okay. it's like me. Like Here's the dubious is that a good thing <gasps> dubious <laughs> that means i love you too <laughs> the debonair Ooh. i don't know what's with the d words but the debonair miss charlotte and i'm wearing a tie and a top hat and <laughs> i'm about <laughs> to sing a song with the uh, ginger roger ginger <laughs> it's only like 900 degrees in here so that's good that's what you get in a recording studio right it's all part of we sound so official now yeah. we have a recording studio guys and you can't Maybe. see it but we're sweating <laughs> We're just like lathered in sweat and sitting very close to each other. And there's a smell. I'm not saying it's a bad smell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it smells like coffee. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, before we get into it, we wanted to briefly mention some updates from the past. That sounds weird. Or subjects from our previous episodes, right? That's a better way of putting it. She's my interpreter in a lot of situations. <laughs> so, yes, we were going to talk about Wonder Woman. The article I read talked about Patty Jenkins, who was the director of Wonder Woman. She almost didn't direct the second one. People, like, threw a fit that she wasn't the one that Marvel chose. And so Marvel was like, oh, oh we yeah. were totally going to hire her. I'm like, mm-hmm, oh, my okay. gosh, I forgot about yeah. all of that, too, which was ridiculous because obviously it grossed so high. And the fact that she was the director had something to do with that. They didn't like her, I think, because she fought them the whole way about, like, the costuming. I think we talked about that briefly, that, like... The original costumes were very skimpy, and they're still pretty skimpy, but, like, they at least have some armor on the other women, not on Wonder Woman, of course. So she, I think she was, like, a thorn in their sides, and that's why I think we like her even more. So she's doing the second one, of course, which is coming out soonish, I believe, and that's the 80s version of Wonder Woman. And then this article was talking about an interview, basically, with her, and she was saying that she thinks that probably the third Wonder Woman film, what they've, which they've already like agreed to do, will be her last one. And at first I was like, why, Patty, why? But then I read it. Like her whole thing is that she feels like in the third episode, I'm going to call it, of Wonder Woman that she does, that she'll be kind of done with telling her story. She's done the three, you know, three or, th- three or so things that she wanted Wonder Woman to do. Right. She's matured in yeah. the story. And that's enough. It's magic three. I can see why Marvel doesn't like her, you know, because it's that's like creative integrity. That's like following your story. That's like the reason I didn't want to stay in L.A. and work there is because of the opposite of that, obviously. And I think that's another reason why there's like this like pushback of not allowing diverse people, including women who are half the population. So I don't know how diverse we really are <laughs> to be in film because they do shit like this. 
you know what I mean? And, and just show integrity and make yeah very wise decisions based on intellect. Right. And, and confidence. like, yeah. And knowing your characters, like knowing story. And of course, like they don't like that. They just want to make as much money as possible. But then they like ruin their own stories. Like it, there's no integrity there. Right. <sighs> so I wanted to share that. And speaking of integrity on another series we were talking about, Harry Potter, the universe of Harry Potter. And our newest franchise, Fantastic Beasts, and where to find them? Uh, not ours. I do not want to be involved in that. That's true. <laughs> we love the first one. Then after that, there's nothing. Yeah. But theoretically, on the third one, yes. right? They sort of mentioned that it was going to have more time to be written. J.K. Rowling was going to give it more time. Yeah. Mark? She yeah she said something along the lines of like once once the reviews were kind of out for the second one that they kind of went back and started looking at the third the third script that they've written or were writing and now they've gone back and they've pushed the date back further part of that is covid of course but another part of that was was the fact that she she meaning probably her and the writing team and probably the production company were like no we need to get this down and is it weird to think that i think they all knew that in producing the second one. Like, after it was out, they were like, oh, shoot, you know, I think we've made quite a few mistakes here. And if we can't solve it, maybe we can push it under the rug there. But luckily, enough people were like, what is this? <laughs> they were like, oh, okay, okay. No, 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 we got to fix this. Let's take it out of the rug here. <laughs> and I, we've talked about this a lot when we did those two episodes. If you want to listen to those episodes, you can find them at ByteThePen.com. We saw Fantastic Beasts 2 with two people whose film tastes I do not agree with on, like, the most part. Like, for the most part, we were completely opposite of each other in terms of how we feel about film. And we all agreed. We were like, what the hell was that? <laughs> like, what did we just watch? Probably because we're all storytellers and, you yeah. know, we study story. So we may not agree on content, but we agree on how a story is supposed to be told, you know? Yeah. So speaking of which, are we ready to break into our episode absolutely welcome to our episode of this is our episode it's starting now uh we're talking about a wrinkle in time and i believe the debonair charlotte is going to be uh, telling us more about what that is and who it was by and what the hell we're talking about why thank you my smooth talking jen <laughs> thank i don't know you, i'm trying to think of something related to debonair <laughs> smooth talking jen that's <laughs> awesome jen cool jen a Wrinkle in Time is <laughs> think <you> thought about <laughs> it. the book, right? It's a book. Mm -hmm. The original book, 1960, was written by Madeline Langle, is how YouTube had pronounced it for me. <laughs> I think it was originally a French last name, but she's American. Because it's like L apostrophe E? Ingle. Yeah, Engel. like E-N-G-L-E. Ingle. Madeline. If you say it quickly, it's like Madeline Lingle. Madeline Lingle. <laughs> <laughs> Try it, Jen. It's fun. <laughs> she wrote it as a standalone at first in 1960. It wasn't published until 1962, after which it became a part of a five-book series. She went on to write more books in that universe, which was very... I mean, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot in the States that involved fantasy and sci-fi in one specific universe. What you did have already in the UK was works like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, Lewis's Narnia series. They were both targeted sort of at children. They, I guess they could be called fantasy children's novels. I mean, Lord of the Rings, my gosh, could be <laughs> called so many things. But Narnia definitely was. That wasn't so common yet in the States. So a Lingle's series was pretty revolutionary for its time. Which is, again, 1960. That's like... Pfft. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but I guess 
It really wasn't. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that situation too and okay. how we feel about it. A Wrinkle in Time, though, is it's the most popular. It's definitely been debated the most, disputed the most. It's been on school book lists. It's been taken out of school book lists. <laughs> it's been sold by bookstores that were considered Christian, that were considered secular. I mean, there's a lot of categories, including the fact that it's both sci-fi and fantasy and children's and it could be read by adults and you know there's all of these categories which we as americans love to do to books categorize them <laughs> so there'll be plenty to talk about there cool and not withholding that it's also has a female lead right yes <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> yeah no yes i'm glad you said it that's a definitely another hot topic for its time the golden age of sci-fi was the late 50s in the states so you have all of these hardcore Male characters targeted to male readers, even though female readers, of course, read them as well. But, you know, even looking at some of the, the covers from sci-fi novels, even taking What's-His-Name's course in college, it's literally like all of these 60s dust jackets where, like, you know, you got the hardcore <laughs> hero picking up the damsel in distress who's, like, wearing nothing. It's that sort of <laughs> decade we're talking about. It's like Kirk. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> On any like given day. Kirk and his, all his females that he won't take back to the ship yeah anyway that's something else entirely <laughs> <laughs> so yes that's the age it was published and it was rejected over 30 times it was published in the u.s it was published in the u.s by a company that didn't really publish under children's oh. works it was mainly adult works you know i think that's because she was a witch right absolutely that's what i read anyway totally she practices witchcraft so. that publishing company was like yeah we take witch <laughs> witches work of course witches work <laughs> mrs witch witches <laughs> witch, 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 witch not witch not that witch Mrs. It's a joke you'll get in like an hour. <laughs> Sorry. So did you want to tell us about the book? No. Like the oh, okay, great. <laughs> That's about it. That's the end, everybody. Say. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll talk. Okay, good. So the general plot. This is true of all the movies. And I wrote it myself. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is how I summarize things. <laughs> She's really good at summarizing things, though. So make your expectations really high. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, kidding. my gosh. I'm going to have to rewrite this real quick. You'll get the gist of it, though. <laughs> so our hero, 13-year-old Meg Murray, is called by three cosmic guides to recover her father from the dark planet of Kamazots. 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 Accompanying Meg is her 8-year-old brother, Charles Wallace, who is implied to have superhuman intelligence as well as telepathic abilities. And then a new friend of theirs is Kelvin O'Keefe, who is both an ally and uh, sort of like a romantic partner for Meg in the story. But in order to travel to this planet, these three guides initiate what they call a tesser, which is a warping of space-time that Meg's father actually attempted years before, and that's what got him stuck on this dark planet. So if the children are to succeed, they must resist the temptations of the dark being called It, which is this galactic energy who's attempting to absorb them into his cosmic evil. Capital I, capital T, it. I might even call him the red-eyed man as oh. we start talking about him because he's portrayed in a figure that has red eyes. True. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He like manifests, well, it manifests itself as a red-eyed man. Exactly. You just said that. I just repeated no, it. No, no, no. That's good <laughs> to, to describe it. Yes. Thank you. Uh, like you said, the movies are very similar. They both kind of take a little bit of a different take on them. The TV, there was a TV movie that came out in 2003, which feels... I will probably accidentally call it the 90s version because it feels very 90s. Charlotte is saying her too. 
I don't need to speak for you. You can just speak. <laughs> We're definitely going to call it the 90s version because yeah. it's close enough and we love the 90s. So Yeah. I mean, I don't think the 2000s really started like visibly until like 2005. Exactly. Agreed. So this is like the 90s version. Clothing included. I mean, the clothing in this movie is perfection. And it was produced by Disney as a TV movie. I have some other information about it that I thought was interesting to me anyway. Yeah, let's hear it. Because we kind of talk about like representation a lot in this show. Uh, the director was John Kent Harrison. Doesn't that sound like a white guy name? <laughs> um, he's a Canadian white guy. That's all I could find on him. Yeah. I think he's a writer mainly, but he directed a few things and then he like went back to writing and teaching. Ooh, that's a good sign. Yes. There was a woman who wrote the teleplay for the story. Uh, her name is Susan Shilliday. And she seems like a really sweet little, like, nice white lady who, like, had a bookstore. She, like, moved out of L.A. and went to the East. I think it was to Massachusetts and, like, made a little bookstore. I don't know if it still exists, but it was so cute to see photos of her. She's just, like, a little, like, librarian. Oh, Another good sign, I think. Totally. And the producer, her name is Kath, well, one of the producers, producers, her name is Catherine Hand. And she was actually also a producer in the 2018 version. Which oh. I thought was really cool. Huh. Because, yeah. like, that must be such an interesting experience to be able to experience it twice in your in your life. Yeah. I don't know. Um, hopefully that means she was really passionate about the story. Totally. She's also a white lady. Which I think showed in the, I mean, the 90s were a different time, of course. But the 90s version is very much, I think, close to how Madeline Langle thought of it in her head. In terms of, like the lack of diversity <laughs> right it's not like no people of color it's just that it happens to be very whitewash you right know? it's based on her family and her life and that's her experience and exactly yeah. so that was the 2003 version which we're going to call the 90s version and then there's the 2018 version also disney not a tv movie it came out in theaters very short though i mean it, they barely did any like promos on it like i never saw much except for a few little flashes it seemed like it was kind of i don't know if that's true i was gonna say it seems like it was kind of catered to like people of color but i don't know if that's actually true or if that's just like how it ended up feeling i mean i don't know maybe that's not okay to say but actually i was gonna add, one of my questions for you for this version was why do you think they made it and we've talked about agenda before. I don't think there was an agenda to target African-American viewers or anything like that. If anything, there was a whole lot more diversity besides African-Americans. Yeah. Actors and viewers. But if you look at, you know, who's... Well, actually, I don't know. Who wrote it? Who wrote this one? <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask Jen, shall we? Here we go. Uh, so the screenwriters, Jennifer Lee and Jeff Stockwell, both regular run-of-the-mill white people nothing special sorry but who we really need to talk about is the director ah her name is ava duvernay and maybe other people know about her i didn't know about her she's awesome i started calling her the woman of first i'm just gonna list a couple of things because it's just so cool she won the directing award into the 2012 sundance film festival becoming the first black woman to win the award for her work on selma in 2014 she became the first black woman to be nominated for a golden globe award for best director she's the first black female director to have her film nominated at the academy award for best picture she's the first black woman to direct a live action film earning 10 100 million dollars at the u.s box oh my office gosh. and on top of that she created co-wrote produced and directed the Netflix show When They See Us, which is based on the 1989 uh, Central Park jogger case, which is, whew, that is such a, I mean, if you know anything about that story, it's already difficult. It's like a group of black, young black men 
were blamed for a gang rape in Central Park. Oh, that one. And they're all young. And right. so they get, like, manipulated by the police into saying that it was them that did it. Right. When it oh, wasn't. Oh, my gosh. That show on Netflix, though, is, like, whew. Like, I had to watch it a little at a time. Um, it was nominated for 16 Emmy Awards, including the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Limited Series. And she won the Critics' Choice Television Award for Best Limited Series. So I feel like she is just on it. She's not even that old. I don't know how old she is, but, like, she's, like, killing it. And it's awesome. It's very inspiring. Right? And heartwarming. And, right? Uh, interesting. So I wonder how they got her to do this film. I am sure that she got to meet Oprah at some point. Ooh. I think that's a pretty tight circle because it's so difficult to be in you know a person of color in that industry if that's how that went down either way that's awesome and like she like created a film when she was really young i don't remember how old she was but she made like a 12 minute film that was actually like really good apparently and she was like really young so i was like yes talent yeah and i'm sure her ambition and her willingness to just not accept no from anybody yeah she must have must have had to do that on so many levels yeah I can't even imagine as not only as a person of color, but a woman of color. Yeah. Good for her. I know. Right. So I'm like, yeah, I yes, I'm going to follow your career. <laughs> Let's get you to direct everything. Uh, and then the producer I already mentioned, one is Catherine Hand, who was in the TV one. And the other one was Jim Whitaker, who's just another white dude. Interesting. Well, and, you know, if you listeners ever watch both versions, you can definitely compare for yourself. But the choices that they make are more on the side of inclusion, diversity. I would say there was more focus on the main character in the 2018 version where it has to do with self-confidence, especially insinuating that she is a black child in a, a school full of bullies who's and she's without a father. And, you know, there's all of these Adopted factors. brother. Adopted brother, yeah. scientist parents. Scientist parents. Like, who is, like, a black mother and then a white father. You right. know, there's all these insinuations, which is great because that opened my mind in a whole different way than when I watched the 90s version or when I read the, the book. Yeah. So it's good. I'm, I'm not saying this is not a good thing. No, it's great. But I would be curious to, to see everybody else's reaction yeah. and the differences that they choose to make. Yeah. And I think you said it really well. I mean, for me, watching the first one, the 90s version, was very, it was good. It was like they made cinematic choices that were excellent that the book didn't have. Yeah. And And some story choices. And some story choices. And that was impressive. And like applause you know but then i watched yeah the 2018 version and i was like oh (laughs) like i see why they say representation matters as like i didn't already know that but just seeing people who are different than what you're used to seeing can make a huge difference in how you interpret things and and there there like you said there is a lot of diversity in the new one it's not just the main characters it's everyone it's all the background characters are diverse it doesn't point to like the white guy is the bad guy you know it feels very innocent in that way that it's just no this is what we mean by like equality (laughs) yeah they don't change the story to make it about that it just happens to be cast like this exactly and with a new vision of plot and character yeah and like the subtle changes or the subtle differences that you would imagine from you know a white girl a white young girl living in this community versus a young black girl living in this community exactly Either a lot of nuance. Our projections. But, you know, in our time, you know, we're allowed to project. I am not happening. a person of color. I cannot speak for them. 
or anyone really, <laughs> but I, I appreciated it anyway, as somebody who isn't, you know, exactly. Oh, and us being witness to what, to what's happening with those who aren't being represented, uh, represented. Yeah. It is hot in here a little bit. <laughs> so our first topic of discussion, why are we interested in a wrinkle in time? What got us interested in this, Jen? So curious. <laughs> I didn't just scoff. <laughs> well, I was on Netflix a while ago. This was probably like a year ago almost. And I happened to see a wrinkle in time on there, the 2018 version. And I watched it. And I was like, why is nobody talking about this? That's like, right. it was so good. And I didn't understand why nobody was talking about it. And I just assumed it was because people thought it wasn't for them for whatever reason. And then I started asking people if they'd seen the movie. And all the people that I asked that loved the book did not like the movie. Interesting. And then I was curious about, okay, well, what's the book about? For me, that's kind of how it started. What about for you? Uh, I think that was my origin, too, because you were the one that had me watch it after you discovered, I mean, after you had seen it on Netflix. Um, I had never heard of A Wrinkle in Time, which is weird because a lot of people, close friends, family have read the book in school, actually. And, you know, we have a friend that says it was one of her favorites growing up. Yeah. So I'm curious as to why this never got to me. And it seems in my genre and it seems in my scope I, I don't know so I was, my first exposure was the movie the 2018 movie I think we have issues with pacing is the biggest yeah. thing but as far as being emotionally moved by the end I was like whoa <laughs> I had a good I had a reaction to it so that's always a good sign that catharsis that we've talked about absolutely and then going back and reading the book mm -hmm. um, and then watching the tv version it sort of filled in the questions that I had as far as pacing and what was missing in the 2018 version. Yeah. But like you said, I I mean, I super appreciate that they made the 2018 version. I would watch that in the same sort of category as Narnia and... Maybe Percy Jackson? That might be a little older, but... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Percy Jackson, oh my God. too. <laughs> I've heard the books are good. The movies, yeah. Yeah, the oh, movies are terrible. They're just From bad. what I've heard. Yeah. It's definitely better than a Percy Jackson movie, for sure. That's good. That's a low bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was my curiosity as to how this could have evaded me yeah. all this time. Same. I huh. mean, I, I'm sure it was on like the summer reading list, but it wasn't one I picked. My mom actually gave me a copy of hers that she loved as a kid, and I kept it, but I never read it. Like, I, it has a weird cover of right. like the, what do you, a space? The centaur. Centaur. With wings. With wings, and he's like blue, and he's like half naked, and I just, I never like looked at, I mean, I looked at the cover, and I was like, I'm good. Because <laughs> it looks like a sci-fi, like a 60s sci-fi dust does. jacket. That's probably why it was so, oh, I hope that's not the reason why I didn't get read by a few people. I don't know. I don't know. It's discouraging. <laughs> but they, I'm assuming they've kind of updated Oh, yeah, they've updated. Okay. And now they have, of course, the the books with the movie image on it. Oh, nice. Which is sometimes problematic, but if it gets kids to read, I'm like, cool. I don't care. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's all how you market it. Kids and adults. Sorry. I didn't mean to be ageist. No, but yeah, I mean, it's it's true. She When Lingle wrote it, she definitely described it as a book for children because their minds were more, more open than adults. Right. Especially in the genre of fantasy, which I would agree with. Yeah. <laughs> and then to expand this conversation a little bit, uh, let's go back to the 60s. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's go get our go-go boots. Yeah, and so groovy. Our 
poodle skirts? That's 50s. <laughs> That's 50s. <laughs> you don't wear go-go boots with poodle skirts, okay? We're combining decades. <laughs> but at the time, 1960, and trying for two years to have it published, mm-hmm. one of the two biggest conflicts she came across, which is the faith piece. She was a person of faith. She was a... Um, Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Yes, thank you. It's oh. just fun to say. That's why I remember that. <laughs> it's almost like a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. In the Jurassic Age, the Episcopalian was a reptile. You know what I mean? Like it sounds like a, it does sound like a <laughs> Once it was published and the country was like, oh my God, this is so religious. Or the other side of that, which is, oh, this is not religious enough. It's because she was directly addressing the problem of evil in a children's novel Mm -hmm. and at points it was actually directly addressing christian ideals right so what what did you think well what did you think about this (laughs) argument too christian or not christian (laughs) enough i have to say it was jarring the first time i read i can't remember i think it was a mention of god or it was some sort of mention that i was like religion like immediately and that pulled me out completely and i was like what's happening like i didn't realize i was reading left behind did you ever read left behind oh it was a series when i was a kid it was like a book series and i read the first one i thought it was so cool because it was like disasters and then i found out that it was like because it's from the bible so there's like all these like disasters that happen but it's like the kids that were left behind i don't know whoa i stopped reading after that point i was like i'm good oh interesting but did it blatantly (laughs) reference god lord Christ? I don't remember, but I definitely see, I I understand the argument. I understand it. Like, I kind of wish it was either more of one thing because it, it does feel, for me, it made it feel out of place that everything's going along and, and there's like spirituality and they have philosophers that they're quoting in it. Scientists. Of course. Yeah. But different forms of belief. I, I get it. I get why they, why people said it's either too much or not enough. It would have been perfectly fine without it, and it would have been, I think, better if it had more of it, if that's the direction you want to take with it. Right. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. I'm kind of taking the perspective of there was already novels out there that indirectly referenced Christian religion. Of course, it's it's all a metaphor. We're talking about good and evil as a metaphor. So no matter what your religion is, we're going to be talking about good and evil in these terms that are universal. And, you know, Narnia had already done that. Lord of the Rings had already done that. Totally. And it wasn't that, I mean, 40s and 50s. It was literally two decades before her. And then hers comes out and, you know, she's going to get a lot of backlash, too, because it's it's actually not in England. It's in the U.S. where there is more and more diverse religions, I should say, too. Does Lewis... Sorry. No, go ahead. Lewis Carroll? That's not his name. C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Who's Lewis Carroll? Is that that's, Alice in Wonderland? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the other guy. He's a different person. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, does he actually, like, directly mention religion? He definitely has more direct references to terms like Lord... Um, oh. I mean, in Narnia, it, again, it's it's a meta, it's all a metaphor, but of course, there are moments where he'll say Lord, or he'll maybe he'll even say God. Actually, I can't even oh. remember now. See, I was gonna say maybe that's. I mean, I think I read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe once when I was a kid, and I don't remember any of it. But I think that would also stick out for me. Like, if it's a metaphor, stick with the metaphor. We get it, you know. Exactly. Don't say something direct to the metaphor because then you like ruin your whole metaphor exactly there's a nun working in hollywood that's a great beginning of the story <laughs> there's a nun working i in love hollywood. the beginning of the story <laughs> anytime there's like a quiet 
like pause in your like conversation with somebody <laughs> there's a nun there was once a nun in hollywood it's like oh okay <laughs> it's own story what are we gonna find out next <laughs> but her job was to teach literature to students who wanted to write Christian ideals in the scope of a metaphor, in the beauty of art, not in the rah, 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 we're religious propaganda, because she was saying that doesn't work. We've seen that that doesn't work in Hollywood. That doesn't work anywhere, actually, because nobody wants to see a group where they're all full of themselves. They want to see means of relatability, which is what the metaphor is. Manifestation of it. Yeah. And that's why Tolkien and Lewis were so successful, because they made universes where those ideals were there without directly pushing Christianity. Hmm. I mean, you can believe in whichever God religion you want, but I think our universality of good and evil will always come across. Right. So I'm kind of defending Lingle here, which is saying that, you know, men had white men had already done this. So good for you for sticking out the argument um, and sticking by your work. Right. that you had to write it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's a little different because she is Episcopalian. 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 And, well, the, what they called her, they called her, I don't know if she called this her, herself this, uh, as a Christian universalism, universalist. Which is what, yeah, the ideals of uh, the evangelist church, which is what Episcopalians are, mm. is the idea that everybody can be saved. It's very liberal in that sense. It's like right. liberal Roman Catholics, actually. And a little bit demeaning. Just a tiny bit. Like, I have a quote that we can read. Ooh, it's just a tiny bit. You should read it. She, okay, so Lengel wrote this. All will be redeemed in God's fullness of time. All, not just the small portion of the population who have been given the grace to know and accept Christ. This is about Christian universalism. Mm. All the strayed and stolen sheep. All the little lost ones. I feel like that's a little bit like, yeah, like, I don't know, putting yourself above others. Totally. Oh, they're just little lost ones. It'll they don't be know okay. any better. <laughs> yeah, like, we'll save them. And it's like, I don't need you to save me. Like, I mean, I get it. And that is liberal, I guess, of you to, to say it that way. But at the same time, it still feels like one of those side effects of institutionalized religion. Totally. Which is making yourself feel bigger or better than other people. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of Christian faiths that are still using the Bible as, well, I guess all Christians would have to use the Bible at some point. <laughs> that's just the text. I mean, the text is is pushing that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interpretation of the text as well. Every culture has apocalyptic stories and stories of chosen ones. It's totally. not new. So I feel like that's going to always sort of come across in some way, for better or worse. But do we get that, like, with philosophers? I mean, I know some philosophers were pricks, but, like, do the, like, do our Aristotles and Euripides, is that a philosopher? (laughs) Do they also have that sort of, like, you are better than others because of this? It's in a different way. They believe there's potential. And if those people don't reach that potential, they're not being productive in Mm. their their existence, I should say. So there's still, like, that judgment piece to it. There is, but it's more like individual choice in Mm. philosophy. They're not saying there was a predestined, preordained way of doing it. It was more like the more you know, the more you can self-improve and then improve your community. I see. Which religion does in a lot of ways now, too. Totally. But there is still the backside of of a text that's not going to be reinterpreted anytime soon. Right. But, I mean, Mm. the idea is hopefully we don't lose all of the benefits of what the text is teaching. Right. And all the texts are teaching. And that doesn't seem to be a problem considering we see it in cinema today. Exactly. I mean, Star Wars is... Is that right? I mean, yeah, literally all the Hollywood movies today can be called metaphors for good and evil. Right. 
which is I, I think it's in a good way for children to know that they can see the differences and maybe interpret differently and yeah and see there's some gray areas and and yeah you learn I think if you are exposed to somebody who is teaching you how to ingest information and then figure out what is good for you what do you call that there's a term for it absorption <laughs> self-absorption um, no that's not it i think children are pretty absorbent you know mm -hmm. that's part of the problem it's like learning how to know which information is not accurate but i guess just true for you yeah and like discerning like discerning what information works for you because i i do think that like movies and books and anything anything story-based that looks at good and evil in my brain i just like almost slipped already it's light and dark right it's like light and shadow it's it's not all things that are opposite necessarily in terms of like they're things to be integrated not yes. things to destroy one you know exactly. but i know that about myself and i interpret it that way but i would need the story to talk about that for me to be able to do that does that make sense yes okay exactly <laughs> And I, again, another reason why Lingle had to, I feel like she had to write these books. When I reread re some of her interviews, it was like, yeah, this, I mean, if it was going to be a religious book, I guess this would be it. But that's not why I wrote it. It it was coming from a place where how do you relay difficult subjects to children in a story form? Right. Where they can, they can see and begin to interpret and filter out those interpretations of good and evil. Yeah, without dumbing it down. Exactly. Because if you dumb it down, that's right. It's like that expectation thing. Like if you expect nothing from anybody, you'll get nothing. Exactly. And also not to be propaganda, which is you believe in this and only this child. Right. <laughs> that's even worse. That's traumatic. That'll traumatize them, which is right. a different topic. Propaganda is no-no. <laughs> Education, on the other hand, excellent. I kind of want to compare how The Shadow was written in the preceding decades and then in Langle's work. Cool. So this is actually basically Tolkien, Lewis, and then Langle. Okay. Sort of a comparison of how they talk about darkness. Cool. And the beginnings of darkness. C.S. Lewis was English? Yes. Okay. He's English, Narnia series. Also, again, I think six books, right? Or five or six books. Okay. Lord of the Rings was technically three, but then there was The Hobbit, so that's four. Plus they're like 900 pages long. Yeah, there was, there's a lot. <laughs> and but, he's English, right? And he's English as well. He uh, preceded Lewis. He even started writing, Tolkien started writing the Cimmerillion. Yeah. Which was his mythologies right. for Lord of the Rings universe for Middle Earth. I wish that every story that I love had one of those. <laughs> like I don't, I'm not into Lord of the Rings enough to get into that, but I would love to read that on any given universe that somebody's created yeah that's yeah that's just a sidebar <laughs> that's like um hard world building versus soft world building mm. lingle's wrinkle in time is definitely soft world building because there's not any like hardcore rules and languages and very specific things maps. from characters <laughs> yeah maps yeah i mean hard world building can get crazy cool yeah but soft world building is it's not meant to be about those right details it's meant to be about the characters right so there's a reason why both work really well, I think. Gotcha. And Lu and C.S. Lewis, Narnia is definitely soft world building too. And those, both of those men are white men, right? Yes. So we basically have two white men and then Langle. Two white Englishmen. White Englishmen and then a female white American. American. <laughs> Just to be clear, it's because that will affect what you write. Yeah. It just will. So Tolkien's version in the Cimmerillion, the very first mention of a darkness of any kind in his mythology, it's that these chosen ones that came from the first one or the 
Uh, what does he call it? Let's get to it. I was it. like, that's what they call the first vampire in Buffy. Isn't it? Like, they call him the first one. Whoa, or really? Or the first, something like that. Of course, it's one of, like, the most basic titles. Totally. <laughs> it works, though. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, like, the first one or, or the first one or something like that. But from him came the Holy Ones. It was, like, mm. it's kind of like in Greek mythology, right? You start with your... <laughs> are we southern all of a sudden oh my gosh i didn't even read these myths that long ago who was the first one whoever uh begat zeus gotcha was the first one so it's it's kind of an equivalent there where it's like the first one creates subcategories of himself itself okay. herself and of course whenever you reproduce there's a chance of a light and darkness being mm. created and jealousies and and their their first appearance in the universe of Tolkien and Middle Earth the first darkness was while these first ones these holy ones were creating there was a moment where their creation sort of blacked out that they couldn't see it and they they freaked out it, they had never not seen something beautiful their whole existence had been about let's create this amazing thing which was you know cosmos middle earth potential of species on this uh, they didn't they never call it planet but on this land and the moment they couldn't see that it was that they couldn't predict what would happen to their creation and that created this weird darkness feeling and the potential that they they didn't know what would happen which is adam and eve actually that's the garden of eden idea which is the once you lose innocence you lose the ability to predict what your creation will do. I was going to say, I feel like the fear of the unknown is like so close to the human psyche. Like that's like one of our collective deepest fears, right? Right. Fear of the unknown. Exactly. So that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, we're, we're mentioning all of this because we want to compare how Lingle talks about darkness. But in Tolkien, he says, but even as Olmo, which is one of the ancient ones, even as he spoke, they were gazing upon this vision. It was taken away and hidden from their sight. And it seemed to them that in that moment they perceived a new thing, darkness, which mm. they had not known before except in thought. Cool. So that's what he I mean, it's says. not cool, but I think it's cool. <laughs> it is cool. It is cool. Because then, you know, uh, go ahead a few years and a then few. you get Lewis' description in Narnia. This is how he describes it in a passage from Treader, The Voyage of Don Treader. Okay. Is that the one with your boy? Yes. (laughs) With Ben Burns? Ben Burns. It's that one. (laughs) Or he writes it. It was darkness. It is rather hard to describe, but you will see what it was like if you imagine yourself looking into the mouth of a railway tunnel. A tunnel either so long or so twisty that you cannot see the light at the far end. And beyond that again, utter blackness. As if they had come to the edge of moonless and starless night. How long this voyage into the darkness lasted, nobody knew. But as time went on, everyone except the rowers began to shiver with cold. Ooh. Again, it's a fear of the unknown. Yeah. Worst fears. Everything's, like, hard to see. Hard to see, yes. Metaphorical as well as, like, realistic. Right. Because I would even think there's a difference between night and darkness. Night is just, you know, no sun. And then finally we get to Langle's darkness description. Uh, But that's just some woman. (laughs) We don't need to hear from her. (laughs) And then she writes, what could there be? This is from the perspective of Meg, the main character. What could there be about a shadow that was so terrible that she knew that there had never been before or ever would be again? Anything that would chill her with a fear that was beyond shuddering, beyond crying or screaming, beyond the possibility of comfort. Love the pacing, first of all. Yeah, it's so beautiful, though, right? I do like her writing. It's very poetic at times. Even more poetic than I think Lewis. I don't know. Like, he's okay to read, 
but it's not as poetic as Tolkien or interesting even Lingle, I think. I mean, I well, yeah, that's that's tough because I I feel like I got a really cool imagery from Lewis, but I got more of a flow from Ang- Langle. Exactly. So I guess it just depends on what you like more. That's true. All well done. But all on the topic of darkness, darkness. is, I guess, my point and what had been written to mm-hmm. children about darkness. Yeah. I'd be curious to see other writers' description of darkness in this kind of light. In the- <laughs> light and dark. In this kind of light. <laughs> I was even thinking Harry Potter about Rowling oh, yeah. and like, the Dementors, how she describes the Dementors. Totally. I need you to do that, okay? Just, like, compile authors' descriptions of darkness and lightness. Whoa. That would be such a cool, like, coffee table book. That would be. <gasps> oh, my gosh. That would be. That would be really cool. Wow. No stealing it at copyright 2020. That's right. We're going to do it. You can't do it. We're, we're the first ones to do it. And it'll be nice pictures. and It, it would actually be really cool, though. <sighs> that would be a great research project. Yeah. Oh, and the only other thing I was going to mention, it was that Lingle directly references some Christian names. And right. I don't know if we want to talk about that. but I If it wasn't like something I blatantly religious, I didn't catch it. Right. You know, it was but more subtle. I think there were only like three or four times where I was like, oh, religion. I forgot, you know, and if there's more subtle connections there to religion, I didn't notice. Right. And, you know, you're right, because she had not introduced any sort of direct reference until my first experience was when they're on the planet Uriel, which was named after an archangel, Uriel. And this planet is described very beautifully, kind of like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And the inhabitants are, I think they're singing. They're doing some sort of communication where the kids are very curious. And Mrs. Whatsit turns to Charles Wallace and says, can you interpret it for your sister and for Kelvin? And because Charles Wallace is supposed to be in tune with this galactic psyche, he he tries to interpret it for for Meg. And I don't know if it's him finally or Mrs. Whatsit who finally interprets it. But the, literally, it sounds like a hymn. It's, not, it's like the lyrics of a hymn. I'll actually even read you like the first part. And that's what threw me off. I'm like suddenly like, what? Am I in mass? What's going on? Can you sing it like a hymn? Absolutely. You know how to sing. You sing better than other people. I know how to sing songs that are already invented. Oh, my God. (laughs) One of these days, I'll be able to put this to music. Okay. As long as it's something you'll consider. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Wink. Oh, my God. Uh, The lyrics to the song is, Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein. The isles and the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift their voice. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord. You you can't get more Christian than that. That I, I literally think she just took some text from the church hymnals and... I don't know. I mean, it's a nice sentiment, but that it definitely took me out because nothing had been written in the story thus far. Thus far thereof. That's what I'm saying. Hmm. Like, if it were more consistent, then I would know it wouldn't jar me because I would know what's going on. But because it's not consistent and it's like only in a few places, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And if I were an editor, I would say, you don't need that. If you don't need it, don't put it in. Right. And she didn't need it. Yeah. It was a choice, I feel, because she wanted to save people. And that doesn't sit well with me when I'm reading a story. I can see that. Which is the other part of the argument, right? Right. The the ones who thought it was not Christian enough. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> which I get. I like I said, I get both sides. Right. You know, if that's what her intention was, which is how it looks, and she is part and active, obviously, in terms of Christian universalism. Then as one of her like friends in that circle, I would say, why do you only mention it three times or four, however many times she does? Like, why not make that a consistent thread? Make it part of your story. Right. The other blatant time she mentions God is and I had to actually reread parts of the book for this because I couldn't. Re- I mean, the story is so well done and it is alluding to other things like science. And totally. Philosophy. Which and we'll talk about some things. Yes. So it, I can't remember these parts because it doesn't it seems lost in the story. Mm. But the father, surprisingly enough, when he has failed to save Charles Wallace and they're sort of in this recovery planet trying to think of what to do next. Mm-hmm. I think he's telling Megan Calvin or maybe he's telling the inhabitants of that planet that He's not like the Mrs. W's. He's not cosmic. He's a scientist, a, a father with flaws, but he knows he's on the side of God. And the the words are a little, you know, it's different than that. I'm paraphrasing. But he says his bigger goal here is is to be on the good side of God. And that's the first time again, like he, he's a scientist, which, you know, that doesn't, you know, a lot of scientists are Christian. Totally. And that's awesome. Yeah. But there was no reference to that before. Right. If anything, he was just a hardcore scientist. And suddenly he's saying the reasons he's doing the things he's doing is because he wanted to give glory to God or something, you know? Yeah. So it is, again, it's a little jarring. We're not saying it's good or bad that it's there, but it's jarring because it's inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's not bad necessarily. I just, I I disliked it as it is. I would have rather had more or less. Agreed. Well, that was actually the only only thing I was going to mention then is the opposite side, which was the arguments that maybe it had some witchcraft. and That's what I was going to, yeah. Too secular because she insinuated that everybody would be saved. I don't know. (laughs) Which, what, what do you have for that? Yeah. I mean, well, so there were a couple controversies. We'll talk about that one first since you brought it up, which I think is a good point that the novel has been accused of being both anti-religious and anti-Christian. And part of that is because there's an inclusion of witches, crystal balls, and New Age spirit, spiritualist themes that don't reflect Christian teachings, which Christians have not been super supportive of witchcraft, Harry Potter, <laughs> in more recent times, Harry Potter, but other things as well. Yeah. There's a couple different examples like they uh, what I found was what I found was at the school district in Alabama, of course, it's Alabama, oh, no. added it to their banned list or wanted to because, quote, books listings the name of Jesus Christ together with the names of great artists, philosophers, scientists and religious leaders when referring to those who defend Earth against evil. That's the reason? <gasps> oh, I was 100% sure you were going to say because they thought the three W's were witches. There's that, too. We'll get to that. Oh. But not in Alabama. But the reasons was because they were quoted alongside scientists and philosophers. <gasps> in fighting evil. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's Alabama, and it was way in the back in the day, I assume. So. Okay. The other one, which makes a lot of sense, was in 1984, which is at, like, the height of the Satanist thing that happened in America. I can't remember the name of that. There's like a famous murder case that happened at the same time, too. It was just like everybody went crazy and thought everyone was Satanists and that it was something to be afraid of, even though Satanists are like some of the nicest people. (laughs) This world, it's upside down. They, a place, Polk City in Florida, claimed that the book that the novel promoted witchcraft, it was challenged at an elementary school. I guess I get that. There is some witchcraft in it, but again, it goes back to like being able to read something and discern information. And I don't know, because the scale is in the universal and the cosmic and because the three W's are talked about more like 
stars actually they're called directly stars. Yeah. called stars <laughs> not directly called angels even though they're described as angelics and maybe as soldiers of the light that's right. maybe the only sub-reference to angels and guardian didn't they say them for guardian yes guardian okay. was one of them yeah an angel thing right? i mean the way yeah the way they describe themselves it's not it's very little witchiness but in see, it that's what i mean like uh back to the religious thing it's like she didn't say it directly there so why'd she say it directly in other places good point just saying and then she does describe the red-eyed man as a happy sadist near Which, the end. Yeah. I'm like, I actually love that description. Like, if I were a parent, I think that's the line where I'd be like, mm, I don't know about this. Because that's, like, a very adult thing to say. It is. If my child asked, like, what's a happy sadist? <laughs> like, well. <laughs> Interesting. But the other stuff, like, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into the story, which we haven't even gotten to yet, guys. So sorry. I mean, it's not a problem. It's just like, we'll get there. There's a fortune teller, like there's crystal ball. There's there's these other elements that definitely have more of the feel of what somebody could call witchcraft, even though I don't think crystal balls are actually really used in witch in like real witchcraft. Right. Maybe it's the idea of foresight, though, because the ball is used to gaze through time and space, right. which is, again, very scientific in the description of it. And the fact that the happy medium is, well, actually, that's a different topic, because the happy medium is described as neither male or female. Which, they didn't have a problem with that. I kind of thought <laughs> they'd have a problem with that. Yeah, they like to genderfy everything in the Bible, don't they? They do. Huh. Interesting. So I don't know why or what specifically... I don't know what the key words were there that they picked up on. Okay. And then she, I have a quote from her regarding the controversy. I think it's of the Florida one, but I am not 100% sure on that. But it's her saying, it seems people are willing to damn the book without reading it. Nonsense about witchcraft and fantasy. Well, it is fantasy. First, I felt horror, then anger. And finally, I said, ah, the hell with it. It's great publicity, really. That was like the first time where I was like, I respect you. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Meaning if it's con- yeah, if it's being conversed about, that's always a good thing. And she's just like, hell with it. I'm like, damn, girl. Like, you don't sound like a Christian universalist. Oh, that's true. In that sense. That's true. Which I kind of like. I mean, I mean, not that I don't like those people. It's just I, I like that she could still have some sense of humor about it. Yes. And not be like turn super religious on everybody no and i yeah i don't think her her faith sort of teaches any of that anyway no that's good you know she could have been a very right-wing christian in which case there there would have been more butting of heads but just the fact that she began as a liberal woman of faith right i think helps that too totally like good well as long as you got the message that you know there is a battle of good and evil going on yes then this would all have been worth it and there's just one more. Can I yes, mention one more thing? Continue. Yes, I thought this was important to mention just in general, as well as for this story. But there's a, a list that comes out from the American Library Association. It's a nonprofit. And they, they base it. We'll talk about what they base it on. But it's for this one, it was called the 100 Most Frequently Challenged Books of 1990 to 2000. This refers to books sought to be removed or otherwise restricted from public access, usually from a library or a school curriculum. Mm. Uh, and the list is primarily based in the U.S. because you're welcome, America. Because <laughs> we just mess up things. I know. Uh, it's gathered, like I said, by the American Library Associ- Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, which is, I think, important. If you know how to support 
your local office for freedom. <laughs> yes. You should do that. I support my office for freedom. <laughs> and they gather data, data from media reports and from reports from the librarians and teachers. And according to the OIF, which is an acronym for it, the top three reasons for challenging materials were that they were, one, contained sexually explicit content, two, offensive language, or three, were unsuited to the age group. And I think that's so interesting because her book made that list. She was number 23 on that list in the two, in the 1990-2000 list. I just think that's really interesting because those aren't necessarily the things that people are, you know what I mean? There's always a political thing behind it. So those three things are not the things that they're talking about. Oh my god! They're not talking about sexually explicit content. They're not talking about offensive language. And they're not talking about it being unsuitable to the age group. I see what you mean, though. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, those are the things that they use to try to get something banned but those aren't the actual things that they're talking about it reminds me of the twilight zone with uh censorship it has a lot of censorship themes going on yes and those are usually by a small but zealous group of people this will always be a thing yeah and that's why i think it's good to know about it like i think that's really cool that this nonprofit creates this list and tells you what the criteria are for the list. Yes, exactly. So Being informed is always helpful. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting to, to read the most recent list and see what's what's on there. Interesting. Why. Good point, because I'm sure it's even changed from uh, I'm sure. the 90s to now. And I know I did read that Harry Potter made it like a few years in a row. Really? Yeah. Because well, of all the witchcraft. Yeah. I was going to say that one was, yeah. At but the again, time, that one was more directly. Yeah. But no sexually explicit content was in there. There wasn't offensive language. <laughs> it was suitable for the... It was the, suitable yeah. for the age group. And she actually got older with the characters, exactly. with her audience. Exactly. She followed her audience. Yeah. That's so impressive. It doesn't mean any of those. Hmm. Very interesting. So there's always that, like, political, religious connection. Absolutely. I'm sure they're doing that with movies now because kids are hardly reading. <laughs> I think, yeah, they're doing it hardcore. Especially with, like, Disney and stations for children right seem to get more and more censored and more and more dumbed down or they're explaining things to us thank you very much disney because we can't interpret for ourselves (laughs) all right that's a different topic yeah but thank you everybody for hanging in there for the talk of good and evil i'm like yeah totally you're welcome (laughs) oh you too jen thanks for hanging in there I mean, if we think it's interesting, somebody must think it's interesting. Exactly. I'm hoping they do anyway. And there's always more to talk about with good and evil themes. So glad we talk about that first. Totally. And I think this is a microcosm. This is like a a metaphor in itself of what we should be doing with all material that we ingest. Right? Because we want to make sure we know what we're... Not just what we're agreeing with, but what we're disagreeing with and what we're like not feeling and... Exactly. Why we have a catharsis or we don't have a catharsis. So we always want to know why. This is why we do these episodes. It's not good enough just to read the book and watch the movie. Yeah. We got to do the research, which is the best part because yes. sometimes you're proven wrong. Like sometimes I've proven myself wrong. I'm like, oh, no wonder <laughs> it's written like that. You know, it's just, I love it when you know. I think it takes some thick skin to admit to yourself when you're wrong, let alone to tell others. Right. <laughs> so I think that's awesome, personally. Well, yes. We will continue to admit to all of you when we're wrong. I like that we just, like, justified the reason for this episode. <laughs> See, guys? We proved it. This is worthwhile. It's totally worth talking about, okay? <laughs> I think before we dive into the actual story, we're almost there, guys. Uh, we want to talk a little bit 
about some background information and some like context, right? Yeah, I would call these two additional themes to the book too. That Lingle explores. Uh, one of them being science. I would call this soft <laughs> science because it's soft world building and she doesn't get into the specifics. But if you were to ask somebody who's read Wrinkle in Time, they'd probably say, well, it's a combination of Einstein's theory of relativity, <laughs> of string theory, of quantum theory. There's a lot of theories it's based off of, which makes it very fun and sci-fi-y. And it's like good enough to give you that and make it sound real. Yes. Without it, it's enough there to make it feel real. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't distract me because the idea of their lives being surrounded by science or having scientists as parents, both Meg and Charles Wallace are constantly sort of testing their knowledge in science. A lot of math. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The movies do that well too. Yeah. In the newest one, there's like flashbacks of the father sort of describing science to his very young daughter right it's and really like getting it yeah easily yeah but i mean all of the kids are described as being very intellectual right that's because they talk about it a lot they're right. not afraid to talk about the topic of science which is probably another reason why maybe hardcore christians were like that's not how our household you know <laughs> right. runs but in this book the way she describes the family is very science driven yeah and not in a bad light either it's not like a lesson and don't be too scientific at the end you know very pro-science <laughs> yeah because isn't one of the the weapons meg has against the darkness when she's fighting him is that she recites her um elements of the periodic table the periodic table mm. i mean even something that simple she's remembering her independence and her individuality because of what her parents taught her right and what they valued little things like that is so helpful can you beautiful. demonstrate for us by reciting the periodic table of contents. Oh my contents. gosh, totally. I'm going <laughs> to start what it's with um, uh, iron, baron, magnesium, fluoride. Fluoride. <laughs> there, it's bad for your teeth in big quantities. Absolutely. That's all I know about fluoride. That's right. And sometimes you put it in your water, in your city water. You know? But you shouldn't no? do that. Oh, really? Because you don't want to have too much of it. Right. Like putting having fluoride in your toothpaste and not having fluoride in the water, good. Oh. Having fluoride in the water and, and not in, in and not in your toothpaste, good. Oh, one or the other. Got it. But having both at the same time like erodes your your enamel. Oh shoot! See, it's all about balance. Exactly. <laughs> Did you know we have arsenic in our water in, really? in New Mexico? <gasps> it's a very low percentage, but that's why they tell you not to drink the tap water. Oh wow! There's like arsenic, and there's a couple other like natural lethal mines is that what they're called Ooh. like deposits right of like dangerous chemicals and it just gets into the tap water so interesting now i'm thinking like in princess's bride where he's <laughs> building up a tolerance to arsenic that he could just like drink it and not die i wonder if that can happen to us it's only one way to find out <laughs> <laughs> nobody try that okay yes, yes. what were we talking about fluoride <laughs> periodic table the science of wrinkle in time right reeling it in <laughs> Which, again, it's going to be a very short discussion because I just want to mention that the theory behind the act of tessering is how Lingle describes it in the book. And tell us what tessering is. That's a great question. Thank you. <laughs> when the three W's describe it, and if we haven't mentioned this before, the three W's are the three cosmic mentors who are getting the children to the planet where their father's being held. The angelic-like ones we mentioned. Exactly. Mrs. Witch, Mrs. What's-It. And Mrs. Who. Exactly. They are the ones that are able to travel through space and time. 
And when they they do it the first time, they do describe to the kids that it's called tessering. The way they describe it to them is a fold in space time. They they make fun of it. It's like it's more like a wrinkle in time, which is where they get the title. <laughs> and I think Mrs. What's It is the one to describe it with the ant on one end of the string trying to get to the other end of the string. Mm. And she says instead of the ant just traveling that straight line from point A to point B, you bring point A and point B together. But the idea is to instantaneously appear in different time and space by wrinkling time and space, which, according to our physics, is a theory of a fourth or fifth dimension. The dimension of sight. The yeah. sound. Because, <laughs> well, according to science, the fourth dimension is time. And then when they started talking about string theory, they were saying, well, in order to describe things like black holes, there has to be more than four dimensions. Mm. So possibly this fifth one exists, in which case you can wrinkle space time. The, some of, you know, I think Meg sort of gets it. And then Charles is like, totally, it makes total sense. <laughs> He's, He's supposed such to be super a little, intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It's, it's just interesting the way they describe it to the kids. Yeah. They do seem to get it and believe in it. And I do have a, a passage of them. Yeah. Tessering. Please. That helps. Yeah. This is when Meg is tessered for the first time. She was alone in a fragment of nothing. No light, no sound, no feeling. Where was her body? She tried to move in her panic, but there was nothing to move. Just as light and sound had vanished, she too was gone. The corporeal Meg simply was not. Suddenly, she felt movement. This movement, she felt, must be the turning of the earth, rotating on its axis, traveling its elliptical course around the sun. And this feeling of moving with the earth was somewhat like the feeling of being in the ocean. And beyond this rising and falling of the breakers, lying in the moving water, pulsing gently with the swells, and feeling the gentle, inexorable <laughs> tug of the moon. It's a metaphor. I mean, she puts it in metaphor form so that you can understand how it feels. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to describe something like that. Because they're kids, but also... I don't know things. So, like, as an adult person, I appreciate it. Yes. We need to have a window into the experience. Yeah. I was just going to say it's interesting that the the act of tessering is very connected psychologically mm. to the kids. Right. And I, I'm pretty sure it's like that in the book, in the TV version, and in the movie version. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Where there's some sort of – where Meg is struggling – because she's so unconfident about herself and it, and it almost hurts her right yeah almost kills her actually yeah. especially in the movie in the movie one that's the where it's the most apparent because they can show it because of graphics that one you get to see more of what it's like inside of tessering and how it's like dark and pulling at her and then you get to see you don't get to see how the rest of them tesser really right but every time they do they're all happy and like happy go lucky and she's just like what the hell guys and then when we do see her tester finally at the end, we see how her consciousness has changed and how that's affecting her. And then she's like godlike yes. or Jesus-like in her tester at that point. Good. Yeah, that's a very visual representation of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Of bringing the boon? Yeah, that too. But of the higher self, of reaching that higher self, higher knowledge, becoming complete. Right. And that's a great visual because all of this time we've seen her struggle through tester, other people tessering her too. Right. Uh, but she's struggled through that, almost right. died from that. And then at the end, it's it's like she has control of it. And, yeah. And she's she surpassed. Them. Yes. Yeah. And uh, come to the same level of Charles Wallace of the Mrs. W's. She's yeah. she's now at that level of savior. That's a great visual for the journey. 
Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get to the story, but I also like that she surpasses her father before the climax of the film. Ah. Or story, I should say. Exactly. I think that was a good point. It's beautiful. <laughs> Power of the children. Yes. Yeah, that's all I kind of wanted to say about the science. Again, it's 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 soft science, so it's it's more fun than anything. We don't we don't have to delve into the details. I have a random tidbit. Can oh. I add it? It's completely random. Add it. <laughs> uh, there was a question and answer at the end of my book with the author, and it was like a bunch of kids had questions. So one of the questions was, "How did you get the idea for a wrinkle in time?" And her response was, "We were living in the country with our three kids on this dairy farm. I started reading what Einstein wrote about time." And I used a lot of those principles to make a universe that was creative and yet believable. I thought that was like a weird choice, a weird dichotomy of like reading about Einstein's time while living like on a dairy farm, which yeah. I'm not trying to be anything. It's just like that's like stereotypically not where intelligent people are. You know what I mean? Totally. So I kind of like that there's like that dichotomy. I mean, it's obviously not true. It's just like a stereotype, but that she's like randomly on a farm and starts reading Einstein and decides to like interpret it in a creative way that's believable I'm Absolutely. like done that's that's like the basis of your book and it's great I love it yeah <sighs> something about farms and ranches where yes imagination soars yes you have space for your brain to to think or you get time to read and maybe that's a big one too <laughs> that's very true <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit more about context sorry one more theme don't be sorry which makes sense because at the time this was published, we were kind of in that Red Scare, the nuclear arms race. You remember that. All of that good stuff you remember. That's when they said that, like, if a nuke hits to, like, hide under a blanket. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or under their desk. Or under their desk. <laughs> or in your locker. Right. But, I mean, you know, overall it was it was a fear of a socialist movement, which was coming from the Soviet Union. And in the book... There is a very, I think, a blatant reference to the Soviets, you know, the way that government would work theoretically. And it's on the planet of uh, Kamazots because Kamazots is very much tyrant controlled conformity. And in the book, she's saying like, oh, this planet actually succumbed to the darkness. Right. They were gotten by the darkness. So the kids have to be super careful. Don't separate. Remember your individualities, basically, because it's all Conform about conformity. Right. right. Sorry. I didn't mean to no, no. So tell me. Yeah. What did you I mean? What do you think about all of that? How did she sort of portray that? It's it's interesting because if you've seen the 2018 film, you don't see any of that. That's not there. It's that not was present. Bypassed. Yeah. Completely. And there's some. There's some good reason to include it, especially nowadays. And the TV movie did that really well, in my opinion, because it was hard. The book was really hard for me to get into, uh, very difficult for me to get into. But once I saw part of the TV movie and then we finished the TV movie, then reading became really easy because I could kind of see what she was implying. Yes. And that's why I'm a visual person. That's just me. But it, it does. It has this sort of bureaucracy mixed with dictatorship mixed with socialist feel or like nazism but like the not benign but not kill millions of people right. nazism <laughs> it's very like i compare this a lot but it's a lot like brazil the movie with uh, that terry gilliam did it's very um everything remains the same you do the same thing every day everybody wears a suit they all carry a briefcase everybody just kind of like falls into line it's like standing in a bank you know like that's how the whole place feels except for the undercurrent which is all telling on your neighbor 
right. and making sure that everybody in your community is following the conformity. Doesn't stray. You're not too different. Right. In the book, if they are too different, the it even says that they are put to sleep. And that when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's a whole other level. And they, they do retraining and it's with, they, I mean, they show it in the book and in the TV version where there's children that are being retrained. It's kind of scary if you think about it, but when you see it, it's not quite as scary, but it's like these kids being taken into rooms where there's like electrodes and like, like a single, it's very mental hospital-y. Yeah. And they're just like brainwashing them basically. And if they can't fix them, then they put them to sleep. And yeah, I think the book describes, I mean, you're right. Now when I got the visual of it, especially in the cinematic idea that it's a very circular system because all of the Burbian outskirts are the families living uniformly. Very 50s style. Yeah, creepy suburbia 50s and housewives. and yeah. As soon as the kids go further in, they're asking about central, central intelligence. Which they're is... like in the city now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the, the brain, where the brain lingers. The Which is the it. Spoiler. The <laughs> it. Oh my gosh. The it is a brain. We literally just watched an episode of Star Trek from the original series from like 1960. And there's like three brains that you find out are behind everything. I'm like, oh, okay. So this was just a thing in the 60s. They just like imagine sentient life being just a brain i guess so (laughs) that's you're right though there was a lot of literature especially sci-fi where it was like evolution is eventually going to be just brains we don't need our bodies anymore or or strength or any of that and it'll just be intelligence i think now it's like getting put into machines right right i mean even the new picard there's some of that sorry spoilers (laughs) oh my gosh you're right though there's that's very thematic societal movement i mean you see these movements of of our society and our, and our choices exactly predicting the future interesting hmm. mm-hmm. also can i just mention real quick it is mentioned quite a few times and it's capital i capital t and every single time i read it i read it and so i kept thinking of like tech people being behind all this and i'm like oh my god it people who are like bitter should read this and feel good about themselves <laughs> <laughs> just sidebar oh, poor things which is funny because they kind of operate similar. I mean, the, the brain of the it operates sort of like IT, which is whenever it gets reports of something being yeah. damaged or not working properly, it goes directly to them. And right. it, all the information sort of flows through central, central intelligence through the IT. That's true. That's a very good observation. I'm just saying. We're cracking this open, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I can quote a little a no. little passage about <laughs> Go for it. This is what the book says about the it and about the planet of Camazots. So Camazots is one mind. It's it. And that's why everybody's so happy and efficient. That's what old witches like Mrs. What's-It don't want to have happen in the home. So this is the red-eyed man telling the kids this. He's describing like why this society works so well and why you should join us in this society because there's no illness. There's no mistakes. It's efficient. Everybody's quote-unquote happy being the same. Always trust a man with red eyes. Absolutely. (laughs) Always. He was even compared to, I mean, of course, the devil, but in the temptations of Christ, that passage where after 40 days, Jesus is in the desert. He approaches Jesus with three temptations. There's some similar temptations happening with red-eyed man and the kids, Oh, but they've also gone through this exhausting journey. So they're at their lowest point, just like Jesus was after the 40 days. What are the the temptations? In the desert? um, Fear? (laughs) You're going to ask me that. Wait, give me a second. I know this. The first one, he's offering food because okay. he hasn't had yeah. any food in 40 days. Same thing with 
sprinkle. Yes. Oh my <gasps> That's God. where the reference came. I don't know why I didn't notice that. That's where the <laughs> reference came. I did. I don't know. I read it somewhere though. Oh my God. Okay. You're right. It's food. Oh, interesting. It's always the first temptation is food because after a journey, you're starving. I was thinking Pan's Labyrinth too. Oh food my Food is a gosh. thing there. So what was the other temptations? Um, the second one is a temptation of ego. He mm. wants Jesus to prove that he is who he is to the people. And he says, go to the temple and cast yourself down, but save yourself before you hit the rocks. It's basically like a show and tell. Ah. Like, here, my people, I am okay. the Lord because I can do this. The red guy does that. A red-eyed guy. Yeah, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. This is a direct correlation, isn't it? <laughs> if you just left it that way, Lingle. Yeah. It would have been great, <laughs> See? but no. Reference, and the kids would look it up later and be like, "Oh my gosh, yeah. there's the connection." Yeah. And what's the third temptation? Is something about power. He's saying you can change everything. Like if you just call yourself, or if you just bow down to me, or if you just, mm. if you just call me Lord, you can have all the power you want. No. Something to do with power. That's basically what Red Eye Guy says to Meg. Right. And I think that's the last sort of temptation of Charles Wallace, too, before he gets sucked in. Right. Because Charles Wallace is, he knows the danger of the red-eyed man more than Meg and Calvin even because he's, again, connected on a different level. But he's also a young kid. Exactly the point. And he thinks he can fight it. Yeah. And he can't. He can't fight it by himself. Which is done really well in the TV movie. Yes. The other two, not so much. But the TV movie gets it. Right? Yeah. Oh, that was the only, yeah, I wish in the the 2018 version, because that's such an important lesson, too. Yeah. And they bypassed it completely. Yeah. And I get why. You know, there's not enough time. But I I do think they tried, but it didn't work with the actor that they chose. Yeah. In my opinion. That was it. Yeah, that was it. That temptation didn't shine through there. He wasn't bullied. He wasn't. Like, the one in the TV version is bullied. He feels small. The Gosh. one, Charles Wallace, in the in the film version stands up to teachers almost immediately. That's right. So he's not really small. Like, there's no reason for him to feel this way, to be tempted by anything. Right. He already has everything. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. There needs to be a character arc, even for an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Especially one that we talk about constantly throughout the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I do remember reading... In the passage in the book where Charles Wallace, he finally tells Meg, like, I have to go into the red-eyed man's consciousness because I, I want to know father. That was his mm. very final words before he gives in because he wants to know his father. Yeah, because he's never really known him in conscious memory. Which, again, is not unlike the third temptation of Christ. Yeah, he's totally. He's saying, like, you know, this God you're, you're trying to fight for, like, you don't even know who he is. Like, are you ready to die for your father? Right. Very interesting. I'm it just is. making this connection now, by the way. <laughs> you brought it. I know, to I the brought table. it up, but I didn't make the connection. <laughs> but that, I mean, it goes to show that it is a metaphor that's being used, and it's obviously the skeleton of the story. And that's not bad or good. It's just like how you do it that makes a difference, I guess. Exactly. And again, we'll talk more about this, but I do think that the TV version did that the best. I felt the most connected to that version uh, because everything had a reason. Everything was deliberate. There was nothing superfluous or like out of place for the most part. I mean, you know, it's the 90s. So. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would agree with Jen 100% here because when we talk about characters and about plot, I'm going to be saying the same thing, which is yeah. the 90s version did it the best. Yeah, which seems to be something that we've been talking about recently about a bunch of different things. 
the nineties. Rediscovering films from the nineties that actually hold up better than some of the films that are coming out now. Which is scary. I mean, there's obviously way more that's good also. But like certain storytelling seems to have gone down. Well, and especially for children, I think. Yeah. Maybe that's what's so problematic for me, which is that the nineties really understood there was an intellect there that they could respect, but also open up their minds. I mean, maybe because Disney's such a big thing now and it's gotten a hold of everything and it's all about capitalism. Yeah. It's affecting that trust and that pattern. I think we're in in a pattern where we're on the low. And hopefully we'll come back up to how we were in the, in the 90s as far as storytelling for children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would never have films like Black Klansman, for instance, but it's really good. And we would never have anything like that in the 90s. Not to that caliber. That's true. So it's like the films that do it really well now do it really well. But everything else is like kind of a shitty version. Right. And they actually did it better sometimes in the 90s. I think that makes sense, right? I would. I mean, I agree with it. I don't know if it makes sense, but I definitely agree with what you just said. We're in an echo chamber, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Not about everything. Feel free to disagree with us. Yeah, let's know. Watched everything, and again, I'm coming from a very specific perspective of children's stories, which yeah. I don't know why I'm just like living in that realm now. But it's a nice realm. It's an awesome realm. Yeah, I can't wait till we talk about like Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland yeah. and like. Even Peter Rabbit sometime, I think, would be interesting. That would be awesome. Yeah. Child psychology. Yes. It's coming up. Oh, yeah. Constantly. <laughs> so I think that this is a good place for us to end the episode. We want to thank Jesse Martinez, of course, for being our patron. We appreciate your support. Thank you, Jesse. And don't forget to like us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. If you could, please review us on iTunes. That would be very helpful. And thank you for listening. 